0: Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrull, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured, for better and sometimes worse, across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Jace, how are you mate? Yeah,
1: very good thanks,
0: you good? Yes, wonderful, wonderful. How's um how's life in the uh, the author world treating you? Oh,
1: pretty good, pretty good. Going strong, uh, staying visible, and uh, doing lots of things like this, and yeah, going great, enjoying it.
0: it was um the old man and me the, your first book?
1: Yeah, of that form, I did did some graphic novels about ten years ago. Uh, they were about drug smuggling, um, so we did those for a while. But this is the first one where I've actually been at the typewriter writing away like tradition um Um, so yeah this is my first of this type
0: well congratulations mate because it's it's no easy thing writing a book it takes an awful lot of um I mean anyone can do it but most people don't do they most people are in the category of oh I'm going to write a book you and you immediately think no you're not because if you were you'd you'd already be you'd already be putting the words down on the page so uh yeah massive congratulations it's it's quite exciting is it not
1: yeah it is it's exciting doing the book it's that long slog Mm. Uh, and then after you've done the book you realize there's so much more to do because you've got to get it out there uh so it's a a different lot of skills so uh and that's just getting accustomed to it really Mm. but uh you just try and enjoy it because it doesn't come along very often
0: did you have to try and anonymize people and and you know not not drop people in the
1: uh I mean, that was a that was a kind of a dimension in itself, because you, when you when I was first writing the book, you're writing it for yourself and it's only later You start thinking, actually, this could get published, in which case should I be mentioning this person, this person, and this person and how would they feel about it? Uh, and should I ask them or could you can't really practically go asking people because they're going to want to read what you've wrote and that's no way to go on. So there was some I thought I can put the names down, they're fine. There's some i thought might be a bit and there's quite a few i think well what do you gain by putting the name in it Uh, because during the story everyone uses code names really uh, and that is the way you go you know everything's on the phone so often you're dealing with people you might eventually know their real name but often it's all code names so i've kept a lot of people as their aliases Mm. um so there's only there's only about two people i thought i'm not going to put them in because one i've got no contact with them 2 they've got a bit of a tempo i suppose and three, there might have a few things coming about that I don't want to create many problems. So mm-hmm. that's the way I judged it. And as the feedback as the books come out. that's turned out to be correct because the books come out, I've been in touch with lots of people, and I seem to have judged it correctly. So, yeah, that was good. But it is part of that process of um, you kind of write the book and then you're wondering how is it, how is it going to be received with certain people? Some people are delighted to be mentioned in the book. And there's a few on the eve of publishing. They were like, well, why are you giving me an alias can't you put my real name in and there was a few people like that so you just don't know you can't read people but you want the last thing you want to do is start showing your book to people and saying do you approve of this because there's no way to write a book really you've got to you've got to put it out and just make your own call on things
0: yeah if you put, put power in people's hands then they can start to get a bit manipulative can't they and it starts to become their book rather rather than yours
1: yeah and also the, all the characters in the book including myself are kind of flawed so you're not just saying good things about people There's the good and the bad in order for the people to be three-dimensional you've got to do that mm. so there's also that I mean there's a there's like Raj Kumar who's in the book he was a prison governor highly educated loads of virtues and that but he got caught a lot of the time he was a terrible villain and you couldn't really put that to him because if you say well don't put that in I like that bit and so you, you can't really do that. It's not practical. Mm. You put it out and then hopefully he looks at it and says, yeah, fair enough. I'm not the per- most perfect person, but then Jason isn't the most perfect either because I'm pretty flawed in the book as well.
0: Yeah, when I wrote my first memoir, Eating Smoke, about my, my time in Hong Kong, um, it never occurred to me that I would come across these people ever again because it was fifteen oh. years 15 years ago in my life, right? Yeah. And then of course, Facebook come around mm. and suddenly I'm getting messages. I just seen you in an interview. Did I, do you remember me? And I'm like, I don't just remember you. You're in the book. You're, you're that character. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, I was quite glad that I gave everybody pseudonyms. Um, and that's the other thing with social media. Uh,
1: Cause even my close family, it was, well, I can put their names in, but then you think social media people, some people just like, you know, checking people out just locating them and digging and Mm. trying to change my wife's name my daughter's name they're nothing to do with crime but it's just create a bit of distance really the people who are involved they all know who's who if they've got good memories but uh, yeah social media is another element you have to contend with now
0: Jace, let's talk about your story then so um i mean it's your podcast so feel free to kick it off how you want but i mean um, the question in my mind is what, what is your sort of first memories of your, of your dad? Um,
1: I mean, going back, it was just a set out as a
0: family, going out for a picnic
1: sort of thing. And we were just, uh, earliest memory, we were just kind of this happy little unit, like most families, uh, and your dad's your dad, that's all he is to you at that age. Um, and then it's only later you start, there were things there that later you'll look back on and say, well, that was a bit different, wasn't it? Um, and the certain characteristics, um but for many years my, my dad was he was a coventry businessman uh for those out there was, his name was tony spencer it was only later he'd be called the old man um so his name was tony spencer he was a very good businessman uh, did cooker businesses and furniture shops and very prolific in his 20s made a lot of money um but he was also a Coventry villain as i'd later learn uh he was involved in a lot of things knew all the top people in our city but then he knew a lot of the top people in the other cities, which was quite unusual back then. Uh, most people stuck to their own territory. Well, he was very—he was very good at networking, and uh, he had a few periods in prison. And if you go to prison, you will meet all these people from all around the country. So he—he he always had a bit of an edge in terms of contacts, and he had the other edge in terms of that he could make business money really well. Um, and he was very charming and gregarious and everything. So he had all these little things that meant he become this notorious country villain um, who occasionally was away. Um, my earliest memory of him being away is when we used to go to Lay Hill prison when I was about six or seven and we used to go there. And again, we were still this little happy family unit and we'd go and visit in there and we'd take a picnic and go sit at the table. It was a catsea prison and we'd just have great days out there just, but he would always sit at the table, couldn't move, but he'd give you undivided attention, which is what you get on prison visits. If anyone goes along, it's the, one of the few times right like now when we're talking. It's just me and you talking but it's very rare you don't really do that even at the pub where you've got drinking you're very sober-headed clear-headed you're both engaging um, and you do that on the prison visits and the mm. prison visits are very intimate and you really get to know people then and that's really when i got to know him and you saw this idealistic guy who just had loads of energy and was so confident uh, and when he, at that time when he was going to come out he had all these business ideas and he was studying back then all the prisoners used to study the best ones and that's what he did. It was all about self-improvement. And when he gets out, he's going to change his name and all this sort of thing. Uh, and he had these businesses he was going to do. I'm sure enough, when he came out, that's exactly what he did. Uh, he set up a cooker company, uh, become a national company. And it was like tens of thousands every week coming quite quick. Um, and he'd become this millionaire he'd always wanted to be, uh, except a lot of it was uh, a lot of it was turnover more than and he used to spend wildly. It was always because he'd been away a while i think he'd been away for four years he mm-hmm. had this thing of always trying to make up for lost time which i think a lot of people inside do it's kind of you've been away well you've missed a lot of your prime so he had this thing of trying to get big very quick um so within the year he had all these businesses everywhere he didn't build slowly and he was just constantly expanding that was his way always expand he was never sitting still never consolidating. And that's what he did for the next few years as I got to know him. And me and my brother would go to work with him on Saturdays. And there'd be all these guys visiting him and calling by for advice. And uh, we'd go out in the car with him and meet people in pubs and on car parks. And there's little things you read into all this later. But um, sure enough, he's still a, a city villain, but he's mostly a businessman. He's straight. Mm. And later on, when I did the book, I'd visit and meet one of the guys from CID. Uh, he was an old mate to my dad, so he was a straight copper, but they'd become mates after he left the force. And he used to visit my dad and he used to say to him, you need to stop knock all this, this villainy on the head because you've got it made now. You've got this gold mine, you need to just sit back and just coin it in and just stop associating with all these other people who you just, you don't need anymore. But there's, there's human nature. And I think for my dad, it was business day to day was quite dull, you know, just. It was great expanding and building, but if you weren't expanding and building, it wasn't that exciting. No. And I think that's where he was at. And so villainy was always, always something he wouldn't leave behind and he was always dabbling, which meant he always had these close friends and he was always zipping off to here, there and everywhere down to London and Glasgow and all this sort of thing. Um, and so later this little, well, it's this business empire build starts to implode a little bit. He has financial problems. Um, largely down to over-expanding. This is the early 80s when everyone's after a job. Most people are on the dole and all this sort of thing. Um, so when he starts to employ, it, he starts to go back to doing post office robberies, and eventually he gets caught doing a bank robbery, and for that he'll get 10 years. And at that time I'm 11, and that's when I discover well he's a this big city villain. And didn't you know those days when you used to go Layhill? That Layhill's an actual prison, and he, for this he got done for this. So it's then I start to realise there's a lot more to him than what I originally thought. Mm.
0: Was he, um, Jace, was he a loving dad? You Like, did he, you know, did he knock out well, the hug, he, hugs and stuff?
1: No, I mean, the, it was kind of old school when parents didn't do that. They were kind of, they'd give you attention, but, and if you, you're in front of him, you're really important. He was always very focused on what's in front of him. Mm. But he used to have so much going on. But he wasn't the dad oh, i love your son and all that none of the, i didn't know any father who was like that back in those days it was all very very british and stiff upper lip very stoic uh and he used to underplay virtually everything so when he got done for the bank robbery it was no big deal he'd underplay that um uh, and some of the details he was quite dismissive because uh it was an armed robbery with shotguns and that uh, but he just saw it as well that's how you rob a bank sort of thing it wasn't uh he didn't really consider the staff or anything or That sort of thing it was just everything was very understated in his world so later when he discovered things you like gun running and all this sort of thing and lorry heist and post office robberies they were just things he did he didn't consider them to to be a big deal or anything Mm. there were things you kept your mouth shut about anyway because that was just the way it was then um so but he would always be very understated And later on when he went into the drug smuggling again it was the same thing and i suppose i became a bit like that as well where and you'll see that in the book everything's understated there's not really any exaggeration there
0: mm-hmm. and i think
1: that's just the nature and uh, part and parcel of kind of being in this world and being a son i suppose
0: yeah i do i think we can go through phases of soci, uh, you know being a sociopath in our life I, I say sociopath not psychopath as as in like we're yeah. you know basically deranged and nothing's ever going to fix us but we can we can put ourselves in a in a mind frame where it's like fuck other people, right? I'm going to go and take, like, what's 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 mine. Yeah. Um, and like I say, that's why we can have reform criminals because it's sociopathy. It's a it's a period in your life rather than like you're born a bit mental, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the environment as well and the justifications you have. Um, for him, he was around a lot of people who did that sort of thing. And I think uh, to be high up in the hierarchy, you have to be able to do things like that. Um, also, he's very good at switching his emotions off, which was kind of uh, central to that. Um, but I think he, it was quite normal for him to do these things like that. And he used to see it as it's like a calculated thing where you're taking a certain risk for a certain reward. And if you're willing to put yourself out there, then you deserve the reward. There's a, I suppose there's a sense of entitlement in doing that, but it wasn't like, it wasn't nothing cowardly about it you had to put yourself on the line and i think that's why there was a lot of respect for people who did that even if you didn't agree with it mm-hmm. but you like you you say you do have to be have that sort of mindset where you'll go absolute focused and disregard of the people and i think that's part of being a criminal i suppose uh, when time when there's hard times you have to step up you can just ignore all this and just say i need to do that and that's what's going to be done mm-hmm. and i think he was very good at doing that is, is your dad still alive he passed away in 2015, and that's part of the reason I was able to write the book. Because if if he'd been alive, I couldn't have wrote the book. He wouldn't have had it. He would have. He would have been very against it. But mm. as he's passed, he would be. I'd imagine he'd be very fine with it. We did the graphic novels on drug smuggling. He was so supportive on that. Would surprise uh, it surprised me. But also, he had this side of the of his character of he like to get one over on the authorities, the police, and that and doing things like books or them knowing what he'd done, but not being able to get him. He, li- he did like that. Mm. And later when he got involved in drug conspiracies, it runs through everything. He did some quite remarkable things. A lot of them were, there was no profit in it, but it was a case of he wanted them to know, look, I did this. I got away with it. You can't touch me. And a, f- a few of the villains are like that. Um, I think like Kenny Norrell and Curtis Warren, his little vignettes of them, you know, lording it over the authorities. And my dad was very much like that. And I think it was, he had that from a very early age I think
0: hmm. Is Ken Noy out now I think he is isn't
1: he he is out he looks quite fit because uh, hmm. I think when they're all inside they're all down the gym aren't they so I think he must be pushing 70 but he looks very fit hmm. and Curtis Warren's out and he's as fit as can be but they all they all go down the gym when they're inside especially if they've got the release date coming and that's the only time my dad went to the gym is when he was when he was inside it was just um, getting ready for your release. You want to be at your, your absolute best, and it's just a way, a way of life. And then once he's out, I'd never go to the gym ever. It was just um, same with books. He'd read, uh, you know, every day he'd be reading and absorbing, but when he was out, he never read anything. Um, and I think it was just two, two different modes. You get back to what you said earlier about that switching off certain things. And when he was inside, he could be very focused on what he had to do inside. And when he was out, he would just switch and again it was seemed to be a bit of a skill he had
0: i i read somewhere or saw somewhere kenny Noyes was a freemason
1: the freemasons i suppose there's a lot of politics going on there it it wouldn't be the first
0: yeah i I was just surprised because i i i always thought the freemasons were really hot on blackballing criminals if you know what i mean yeah um like basically not allowed in but
1: I think they're a lot more broader than i think my dad's brother he was in the freemasons and he was a villain but you wouldn't know it he had a he kind of he, he kind of had this style about him where he was a proper english gent but he was as much a villain as my dad he just wasn't so hands-on mm. but i think maybe they've just turned a blind eye now and then um but for kenny North, it seemed a very smart thing to do and um, we coming back i think it saved him a sentence or two didn't it
0: well <laughs> they don't like to say this do they but but quite possibly yes yes
1: yeah very smart thing
0: How so when did things start hotting up 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 for you you're talking about amsterdam and and smuggling and this kind of stuff um
1: well i suppose it's uh, about 95 96 uh, between 80 and 96 my daddy did have a 10 year stretch for arm robbery and then following that he would have 11 years for counterfeit so he wasn't out that long for 13 or 15 years he was away so in 96, I'd be about 26 then, and he was kind of coming back, and we'd, uh, I'd gone off and done other things. I was an animator for several years, and I did other things, ended up with being a bit broke. My dad was coming back, I thought, I need the money. He's doing well, it seemed, doing cigarettes. I need to get to know him over again, like as, a, as an adult, really. Um, see what he's about. Because for the previous 15 years, I'd heard so many rumours about him. It was kind of there was all these things with gun running and the Irish and all these heists and things. It was hard to know what was true and what was fake. Because you get in the criminal level, you get a lot of rumours, you get a lot of bullshitters in and that, in that sort of those sort of circles. So I, w- I was going to find out what he was really like. And same for my brother as well. Well, and my sister. So when he came out in 96, we all would start working for him, doing cigarettes, which turned out to be drugs, which um, it was uh, amphetamine and cannabis. And that would be his business when he came out. And he'd build up slowly, he'd um, he'd come out on license, start getting supplies from Manchester and Liverpool, and then just start building up, you know, so you're doing, I suppose, a key a week and then 10 keys and then a hundred. And he just built up and up and up, and he just built his business back up, except it was drugs rather than, in the old days, it was furniture and cookers. And now it was drugs. Um, And this is how I got to know him over again. And for the previous seven years, I've been, like I said, an animator. I wasn't in criminal circles. So I was a bit of a fish out of water and I had to fit in with this new environment, which was uh, just full of villains, really. <clears throat> a lot of them were old school villains, which was good. Uh, but then you had the new breed as well. And they're all over the country. Like I said, in the old days, my dad was national in what he did, uh, but he was a bit more international now. So you had all these people coming from over from Amsterdam to meet him because he couldn't travel at the time and Ireland and that. So you get to meet all these different people who aren't from the art world. They're all villains of various, forms um and so i get to learn what he's really about and how he works and as i kind of get comfortable in this i get to know him he's he's very much a decent person as i always thought he was except up close you just there's a lot to admire he's incredibly disciplined incredibly focused um, and he's just absolutely devoted to this work he does which is you know it's kind of drug smuggling really he's um he's an importer so the you know, a parcel comes in and says it's a ton and a half of The parcel. He might have 700 keys on the parcel and then he'll take it. And within 24, 36 hours, he's distributed the lots. And then after that, you just round up the money and it all comes in over like seven to 14 days, really. Um, and that's what, what his business was. And so I become part of that with, with my brother and my sister, and it was like a family business, which when I was a kid, that's always what, what I wanted to do with him was, but I thought it would be something legit except this was it did w- work like a business it wasn't like what you see in films you know where there's all violence everywhere and everyone's swearing and drawing attention to themselves it's the absolute opposite of that um, you work for him everyone has to blend in you can't stand out so you can't be wearing designer clothes you can't have tattoos um, you can't have flash cars you've got to melt you've got to you've just got to be low profile because that's what professional criminals are you don't stand out uh, you don't talk out of turn you don't gossip or let your mouth run away on the weekends uh, he didn't like to have drivers who had drug habits um cannabis he was okay with it but coke he wouldn't he wouldn't have drivers who did that um because he wanted people who were disciplined efficient and mean you could trust and so he, he built up this business with these kind of people uh, we all had yeah very reliable but ordinary cars and we all dressed kind of casually which remember because you're going all around the country to different places. And you're not going into rough estates, you're meeting off the estates. So you meet meeting in places like McDonald's and services, you know, places where, so you just got to blend in. And that's what most of the job was, was blending in, uh, staying disciplined, efficient, and being able to take a bit of stress now and then. Uh, Because occasionally a bit of stress would come up, but he would handle that. We'd be merely just kind of, just part of the scene, I suppose. But for the most part, he kind of ran it like a business. And he he would avoid fallouts, because as he explained to me, fallouts cost money. He says, there's that much money in this. The last thing you want to do is fall out with people because someone who's a nobody can come at you. They don't, it's not like the old days where there's a strict hierarchy. Anyone fancies their chances now. So he says, you don't fall out with people and you'd rather lose money than fall out uh, because the main thing is the business. You've just got to keep pushing that along. Mm -hmm. And that's what he kind of schooled me. in. I ended up driving for him in the early days. I would do drop offs and pickups and he kind of schooled me in that. And then I started driving for him a great deal because if you were his driver, you'd hear all the business deals going on. You'd have these five phones, um, you know, for Amsterdam and uh, Spain and UK, They're incoming and outgoing. So your your phone calls are chopped in half. So if you if you have a an intercept on one phone on one phone, they've only got part of the story. So they might know when you're leaving somewhere, but they wouldn't know when you're arriving. So it's things like that. So we'd have these five phones. So we'd always need a driver, and need a driver he absolutely trusted so family you can't trust you know families you trust them more than anybody so i'd end up driving him a great deal uh, and would all most of the time we'd have a fresh car so you could talk in the car um and that's what we'd do all day you kind of pick him up at eight in the morning and then drop him off at a girlfriend's house about 11 o'clock and he'd have these long business days and it was pretty much meeting after meeting darting around the country meeting these people in cafes and on car parks and things just like when i was a kid except this time i was at the meetings so you kind of see what was going on and how he was trading and how we how we just operated as a business you know people are buying stuff and um if we pay cash up front they get a lower price if you want seven days the price goes up if they're a bad payer and it's going to end up being 14 days you charge them a bit more and it's just just like a like I said a business with commodities mm. you almost forget what you're dealing with because you almost never see it Because, you know, the drivers who drop off are different from the drivers who pick up. So you've got people dropping off the merchandise, then you've got people picking up the cash, but you don't really mix them. So if there's any sort of uh, operation and they jump on you, they only get half of it. You get someone dropping stuff off, but they don't get the money and vice versa. And that's kind of important because later on, if people end up in court, they can, there's a lot more mitigation if you're dropping something off and you've got no money, you're penniless. It looks a lot better. And if you're just picking up paperwork, money, then really they can't prove what it's for. So it's kind of, it's all like that. It's very organized. And uh, and it's all designed to just avoid present sentences and hassle. Um, so while I drove for him, a lot of it was him schooling me and me wanting to learn. I was a very keen student. I've learned everything you can so you never have a problem. And that's, fingers crossed, for the most part, that's, that's what happened. Um, he never really steered me wrong on that um so that's how our days when it kind of went weeks into months and then a couple of years but inevitably problems come on the horizon it's unavoidable in the long term but for a long period it was just a business really you almost like i said you forgot what we were dealing in uh and everyone was kind of did their things on the weekends just like a normal like a normal job you kind of did work hard in the week and at the weekend you'd all relax a little bit and then regroup on on the monday but the old man, he'd worked through the weekend. He was he was the same all the time. He always worked seven days a week. It was very rare. He'd he'd have a day off. So, mm. yeah, that was um, 96 to about 99. And that's probably when things start to change.
0: Yeah, you just reminded me of my buddy Simon, who's in, um, yeah. I think he's in my second memoir, F- 40 Nights, folks. If you're watching on the podcast, you'll see it up there. <coughs> and... Uh, there was a knock at his door one night I was around there we were smoking a few joints and there was a knock at the door and um this chap come in with a gear, you know, and he was like really smart dressed dressed, yeah, you know very smartly he had a, a sort of leather man's bag under his thing with and 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 then he he dropped the stuff off and i said to i said to simon but but yam you haven't paid him he said no, oh. that. he said that comes next he says yeah. you never have the money and the gear in the same place at the same time yeah that's right that's <laughs> um, yeah. one of
1: the first things he taught me you do the yeah. first drop off you drop it off and then you wait 10 minutes and then they'll come back with the money mm. and in that period you just kind of move and be casual and blend in like I said you can't be standing out anywhere you go really so it's not like the films where you know that everyone stands out in the films uh, in real life you blend in so no one just you just go day to day and no one notices mm. but that money and the merchandise just yeah it's very effective and it means you do things and people just don't notice you drop stuff off and especially dress like the way you said people just don't notice they don't think about it um and that's the way it was always meant to be i mean i used to wear a suit a lot of the time not with the tie you know like a like a worker off like a work in an office mm. i used to dress like that a great deal because it didn't draw attention when you go through airports you could look quite casual doing that's quite acceptable um but it that was the way it always was and if you ever caught on camera you've got to look quite unremarkable as well and unidentifiable so you haven't got a brand name on you you certainly haven't got a tattoo of any sort no distinctive haircuts or it, it was just the way you had to be but it was the best way to be the safest way
0: yeah you mentioned cigarettes i i, I did a, a spell back in the late 90s um, I was on a tobacco smuggling gang Yeah, <laughs> and we used to do these extreme runs to Belgium, um, which meant basically driving for the best part of 40, 48 hours across to Belgium, pick up a load of tobacco at one of these cheap warehouses that they've got over there, fill up the car, drive it back through the channel tunnel, or, or obviously get on the, Channel Tunnel train and, and come back yeah. dump it all at b and in Dover then get in the car and we with no sleep go go back and oh and, yeah and, and, and do it all again and and if we weren't doing that we would hop on the ferries so did you and, find
1: the ferries more difficult than the tunnel
0: well here's the thing on the ferries it was a slightly different gig what you were doing was hitting the duty free shop and when you boarded your fair and you got your ticket, everybody got a duty-free pass, right? Mm. And it, that entitled you to go to the duty-free shop, get your 200 Bensons. And, and often the deal was like 200 Bensons and you get a bottle of whiskey or, or yeah. some something. It was a long time ago. Um, And so what you would do is you'd get on that fair and as soon as you're on there, you start running around the decks just saying to people excuse me are you using your duty free card most people are like oh do you mind if we have it no no, no. and and so you you collect like about 30 duty free cards yeah you'd, you'd go in the um the back then what was it duty free now it's tax free but anyway you go and you you go in the duty free shop the guy in the till would be on the take So he knew you'd been free 30 times but every time you give him a quid so and and that was a lot a lot of money for the for the checkout person and it was it was an incredible experience because when you were getting on like the min the 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 minibus to go to board the ferry, so you'd park in the car park, you go a bit, you get a shuttle bus to the to the ship, or sometimes we did uh, the hovercrafts, and you'd get what I can only describe as pretty feral, like Liverpudlians on board. like yeah. the, these guys did not give a you know,
1: like kamikaze Yeah,
0: first thing they do, they get on that shuttle bus, spark up a big, they just did not give a hoot right mm. so you got all of us running around the ship trying to get um and we'd we'd walk we you know we'd walk off with like 10 bags in 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 each hand and and it was just it was fine the customs just didn't give a shit, you know you just walk, walk straight through but what the um the liver puddling gangs would do is they'd put a lookout on the cliff with binoculars and they'd be watching or people that were making this trip back and forward like we would because you wouldn't yeah. just get one hovercraft you'd get one as soon as you got back you get on the very next one that you 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 know so you go across to France like you know, 10 times in a day or something and what they would do they would watch out with their binoculars and they would watch for the people loading the car up and then getting back on the shuttle bus or back on the yeah. you know back on the hovercraft or the ferry or and then while they were gone, they'd come down, just smash a window through and take everything from the Yeah, you
1: know, there's a smart mentality
0: up there, not they? Yeah. And it and it got really nasty up there. There was a particular B and B in Dover where they, these lads would stay and and people started to get stabbed and shot and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, it's a bit bit of an eye-opener. I mean, people watching now probably don't realize you can get fake cigarettes. <laughs> can't you you know you can get ciggies yeah. that are like made in china or something but they just put mulberry on them and you can't look at it they're just baked brilliantly um and uh yeah you you could make a lot of money doing that
1: yeah i think at the time there was i think the sentences for cannabis and cigarettes were similar at one time because you know blair government they dropped the cats on the on the cannabis mm. so a lot of people would switch into but that says you may as well do cannabis because the cigarettes has just as much risk if you got done with it. But all the small stuff, they were letting go. But it's like when I come through customs, because I was flagged on the system, I get stopped virtually every time. So that's why I asked you about the tunnel. But when on the tunnel, I wouldn't get stopped because I think they didn't share information then. There was a bit of resentment between the two groups. Uh, but every time I was on that ferry, all these, you know, the booze cruisers and the cigarette smugglers would go through. And there was me who was clean. I'd get stopped every time because I was always flagged. I'd gone over with the old man once and, um, they gave us a right hard time coming back, but ever since then I was on the system. So I knew if I ever went on the, on the ferry, I'd always get pulled. And they were quite vindictive. They would just go through the, they were convinced I was somehow smuggling. They'd just tear the car to pieces. Mm. So, so when you say going through it was so really easy, it was never easy for me on that. So when I'd come back, sometimes I think I would take the tunnel and pay extra just to avoid the aggravation.
0: But they were—you never had any run-ins with the the customs people. Yeah, no, we got busted big time. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we were coming back with our—I don't know—probably um, I think our second load of the night, and um, as we drove off the off ramp off the train,
1: yeah,
0: got to the top of it, and the the customs car was there with its blue light flashing, and they were literally look—they—they'd obviously had a. a a watch person at the warehouse at the tobacco warehouse oh yes writing yeah. down all the number plates yeah and as we came up this off ramp you could literally see the guy looking at his list and going you that way right you Good you go out. you go home you follow that you know you're, you're going that way and and we got led by this customs car to this big again another like big sort of warehouse building and as we drove into it, there was about 60 smuggling vehicles in there. Oh, right. Toyota, you know, Toyota minivans, everything. And luckily, that trip, we just took a shagged out old Ford Escort.
1: Because your van will take it.
0: Well, previously, we'd been taking my mates 30 grand like Mercedes and BMWs and all this kind of stuff, yeah. right? And they they took us in for interrogation and basically said, "Right, fellas, it's like this. You can rock up in court and you can try and explain how you're going to smoke five thousand packets of tobacco for yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, try right, and we tell you now, you ain't gonna, you're not going to win that. Or you can just leave everything and walk out the door. I know this sounds yeah. a bit, bit." slapstick I, but no it was exactly like that they said you oh, can there's leave. a
1: chapter in the book where that happens to me exactly yeah. what you said yeah and it's a case of uh you just have to leave the vehicle you can take everything off the vehicle but the vehicle stay in they you know, wouldn't let they
0: wouldn't let us take i couldn't even take my actual duty freeze i bought a bottle of rum and I uh, ten. Oh, they it. have they have
1: that they did they did yeah. that to me they took all my whiskey it was because they give you a rap sheet don't they and you're supposed to check in. you go down and all my, none of my whiskey was on it none of my own personal but they yeah. all took that for themselves but yeah oh, they took every, they everything
0: we literally walked out there we had to find a bus stop to get a bus to, into into the city into oh. london into london to then get a bus back down to the southwest and yeah, it's it, kind of humbling isn't it it's but demoralizing
1: relief, but you've got a bit of relief because it is a close one yeah
0: so just, yeah yeah, yeah. You lose I the mean, vehicle but yeah you,
1: you, you fight another day don't
0: you it was just fascinating you know to see how crime gangs were i mean we we were you know, we weren't a crime well I mean we were a crime gang but we weren't you know big school but when you see some some of these um I never like to use the word Scouser because I think it sounds derogatory but I would say live it apart- depends
1: I kind of see it as a bit of a compliment in a way
0: because
1: <laughs> it is a it's kind of insightful thinking isn't it and a bit of guts and there there's certain virtues in the name Scouser
0: yes yeah the one that's on
1: your point of view
0: yeah, the virtue the the virtue we saw up there in Kent was like they don't give a fuck, <laughs> like yeah. literally, literally just just don't give a. And they would yeah. put they would put so many vehicles through. They didn't. They had factored in the ones that would get pulled. Yeah, you know? they'd factored that. Um, they'd factored them in. I mean, looking back at it, the the better way to do this was as when you rock up at the the big tobacco warehouse is to change your license plate um although that puts you in a then an another illegal frame probably
1: worse position yeah
0: but you know you could change your license plate and then get 100 yards down the road switch it back again and then when you leave the the channel tunnel they wouldn't you know they wouldn't your, your your license wouldn't wouldn't be on their list but um
1: I think when my dad used to talk about it, with all the others who were doing the tobacco smuggling, it was a case of you had to accept a certain amount of losses. It might be one yes. in ten, say, but yeah. you're going to lose. You're going to lose one in ten. You have to factor that in. Mm. But what you don't want is to have two losses on the trot, because that puts you in a bad position financially. Mm. But that can happen, and then you have to start wondering if there's a bit of a pattern and why there's a pattern. Are they targeting you, or is someone tipping them off, or you've upset somebody, or something? Um, but you, you have a certain amount of losses, but you just don't want them close to one another. And you certainly don't want to feel like someone's betraying you on the inside or you've rubbed someone up the wrong way. But I think they did that with the the smuggling as well. It was always going to have a certain amount of losses. And it's just how you handle it and how other people handle it. Uh, yeah. But financially, it'd be very damaging.
0: Yeah. There was one chap who was smuggling gold back from Amsterdam. and uh... Oh, yeah and uh he got away of it for quite a long time because he was putting these little ing, ing- ingots yeah um in the uh head in the headlight casing of his okay you know, yeah bmw or whatever it was you know you got the headlight and then you got the little bick on the back that covers all the electrics up he was smuggling them in there and when they pulled they pulled him and they knew that they knew what this guy was doing but they'd never been able to prove it and when they pulled him off into that custom shed like they do um i'm talking at the 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 border the the, truck, yeah. the, the, the the actual border you know your passport place um one of the searchers happened to notice that he he'd lost he'd lost the bolt or the nut of one of the fixings and he he'd used a different one to yeah and they oh, just just spotted that and of course they pulled them off there's all this gold behind it and uh, that that was his uh, uh I suppose they
1: pulled up all his previous trips then don't
0: they yes yes so Jace I'm fascinated so I, I mean tell us more I mean what what kind yeah, of well, it was this like the ecstasy era was it round about that time the, when,
1: uh, a lot of people were doing that you know at the clubs but my dad was he was very much we'll do cannabis the spain and we'll do amphetamine the two lines because he fancied himself as a bit of a chemist so we do a lot of the mixing when it came over himself um so he stuck to those two lines but it did mean a lot of the other groups didn't which he would deal with and fix up and supply <clears throat> but his our group only dealt with those two lines and one of the reasons was because they were cat b at the time um so Cat c so mm. prison sentences you were looking at weren't that high because if you stepped up to cat A, the risk was much higher. And also you're dealing with more ferocious people because there's a lot more, it, a lot of people into that who are dealing it, take the stuff as well. So you're dealing with more erratic people, but it's re- reason why you deal with cat B and C, it's a lot smoother, it runs like a business and the surveillance operations are smaller or they don't last as long. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, but if you're dealing cat A and they put a surveillance operation on you, it can be there for months. Was if you're there, if you're doing cannabis or amphetamine, it's not going to stay on you as long. They'll come off, say nothing's happening, and they might hop on later. And he just made that calculation, this is the way to go, really. So that was his business model. He tried to stick to it. Uh some of the people who went into the cat A, sure enough, they'd come down and they'd get done eventually. But when they got done, they got a big sentence. Uh but when my old man got done, he got a lesser sentence and he would come through it, or well, the threat of a less lesser sentence. So that was his. He the ecstasy, it used to deal with that occasionally. You know, if you had a customer who says, can you just get this, that, it, yeah, it'd make exceptions. But the main two lines you'd try and stick to was the the cannabis and the amphetamine. Mm. Uh, and I was okay with that, to be honest, because I, I kind of, cannabis, it was like a music. Everyone smoked it at some point. And the amphetamine it was fairly harmless the way I saw it at the time. And um, So my conscience was quite quite clear. And I kind of saw us as a kind of a, as a business of bootleggers, I suppose, but, you know, for the 90s, we were doing bootlegging, which I imagine by now would be legalized and the government would be regulating it, which eventually probably will happen. But back then, I just saw as a bootleggers, we're doing a business, we're doing no one any harm. And uh, it was very big scale, but uh, that was the way the old man was. He was always big scale in everything he did. When it's a bank robbery or the dollar things he did years ago, that was big. Uh, but that's he, was always, he always thought like that. It was always why dealing ten, where you can do hundreds, and why do why do a delivery every month when you can do it every ten days. It was always very, and that's why he worked such long days, because he was always very intense about what he did, and he wanted everything big scale. And but in case of what do you do with all this, the rewards from that, and he used to just reinvest everything. There was never any game plan for a big mansion or any grand lifestyle. And he never seemed to be pursuing that, and that's part of the book is to. What, what was it really about? Because for him, it really seemed to be about the lifestyle. He absolutely enjoyed doing this. He'd have a smile on his face most days, and he liked the pressure. Uh, it's like a pressure that most people don't like. You know, when you kind of – say you've got a load coming over, maybe it's been seized, and you've had people pay in advance, and they're screaming for their money back because they're panicking. Uh, or you get a raid down the road, and a load of, group, of groups gone down, and everyone's panicking that the surveillance might be coming onto – you get all sorts of scenarios or where some mid-level people have stolen off someone else one of your customers and they're also one of your customers so there's all these situations that, that do come up and then you start to get potential for violence and things coming up um because some you get some people who are quite straight think as business people and think long term and then you get people who are very short term i want my money now i want this this isn't right and i t- effectively have tantrums about things but kind of with essentially threatening people. They might be threatening you or your customers or, uh, so that, that element does creep in at certain points. But the old man could always resolve it eventually until the day came when someone uh, thought differently. <coughs> Ooh, let me mm. uh, just have a supper.
0: Let me chuck a couple of questions in there then. Yeah. So, okay. I, I just wanted to mention that, that my, my whole view on the whole substance thing is I think it all should just be legalized. You know, it, it, when yeah. you look at the the massive amounts coming out of Colombia still through Mexico, uh, it's just ridiculous to think that the, um, the agencies, the law agencies, can even make it a, a, like a and and of course what we see is people that do fall foul of addiction they're the ones that get punished um they're also the ones that don't get help either because it is illegal yeah and 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 they don't they don't get help they get chucked in a slammer where really they 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 need some some proper rehabilitation you know some some therapy um yeah
1: um but since since the book comes out i mean i've spoke to a few police officers who have had the book or who have connections with the book and they are of the same opinion retired officers every one of them they all say you should the government should regulate it's a waste of police time yeah and i think that's where we're at where it ought to be a medical thing not a, a crime thing um you, you know you get your drugs off from someone with medical expertise rather than someone who's a, a villain and i think because yeah. all it's all it's doing is creating millionaires around every city in the country that's uh, all it's doing uh, don't pay tax and they're kind of pretty nasty if they don't get their way on certain things so
0: it's just a matter of when I think um but it's also also based based on fear you know the 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 average member of the public probably out there thinks oh my god if you legalize it like everyone no every everyone would go bang at it and they'd all be like you know and, and it's not like that is it it's you know you know, people are going to do what what they want to do and just because you make something legal doesn't mean this whole swathe of society are going to go oh we'll all go and have a go at that it's yeah some people some people are not interested but and there is them, that
1: market for it isn't that the, the market doesn't change it's just who supplies changes but the market's the yeah. same
0: yeah exactly exactly um and the money like you say you know the money that that could be saved on funding this ridiculous they call it the war on drugs don't they that 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 could be invested in to actually supporting those people that do fall foul of it
1: yeah because it's almost like a, it's a war on the supplies to a market mm-hmm. isn't it and really you just need to replace the supplies with the government uh, and essentially yeah. regulate it and the criminals who want to be criminals can do something criminal that genuinely has some risk but drug dealing there's not a great deal of risk in it and for a lot of people if they're dealing with good people it's quite it does win like a business Mm. it's there's no benefit to society for us for being like
0: that well and the the other thing as well and i can say this hand on heart because i was a a, you know i worked in a a clinic for two and a half years um supporting people who had drug problems and the worst one the one that ends up killing everybody is the fucking alcohol you know yeah the crack and the hair and the Albeit that's not pleasant, um, eventually people get bored of that lifestyle or they get it it, it doesn't pay off. You it's such a struggle to to live that life lo- and people come through it and and off that experience, it can also be a very positive experience. I mean, how many people do you see that are putting out really good stuff in society that have had addiction issues? You know, um hold my hand up here, I like I'll try and do my best, you know? um and of course what what the public would be really surprised because we've all been brainwashed is that alcohol's the worst one it's the one that ends up killing fucking everybody because it's so socially acceptable it's so easy to buy and it's so easy to have a you know flask of vodka in your po- pocket and no one's going to question you, you you know you can maintain that addiction and and it causes such relatively minimal interruption in your because people make changes when life becomes too difficult that's when people make changes right i'm doing this thing do you know what it's not working anymore this is no you know bash your mind against the brick i'm going to but the problem with alcohol is it doesn't give you that massive chaos in your life it's just so bloody easy to do
1: I mean, that's why the cigarettes and the alcohol are acceptable because people like, traditionally, you can do, you can work and take those stuff and people can regulate them have them on weekends. They're kind of acceptable. But the other drugs would become like that. But if you've got education with them as well and you've got medical mm. help and they're better than what they've been supplied now, they shouldn't really disrupt mm. society like what they say. There's always yet- a minority of people who will have a problem with any sort of drug, but there'll be help for those people, which would be different.
0: Yeah and the thing the thing is is so mankind is all, all mankind ever since we you know lived in the caves we've always done this stuff right man has always looked for a way to change his you know mindset for a temporary period you know going back to the shamans and the mushrooms and the you know whatever yeah. you know um and so the notion that you can have a war on this and stop mankind's natural instinct is that that's just ludicrous in itself and clearly and the other thing is there's so much demand for substances now and it's because essentially people are generally unhappy you know they're looking for something exciting at the weekend or da da, 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 da. this is why yeah i mean america it's the biggest consumer of the colombian product Mm-hmm. on the planet and yet it's supposed to be the most forward, forward thinking biggest superpower da, 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 da. well clearly yeah. clearly there's a lot of people there that that are unhappy going about their daily lives and not doing this stuff hence hence the demand and uh you know all, all of this all of this needs to be um looked I mean, into in a different
1: world it would have been very different if it'd been legal 30 years ago then Mexico and Colombia and places would be more. So they wouldn't have all these gang problems.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it could be a
1: product and America maybe not have the problems it's mm. had. Uh, everyone would benefit really. And I went tr-
0: to yeah. um, I went to Acapulco, Chase, Right, uh, absolutely great time in Acapulco. Um, as I was, was travelling in, in in the Americas and stopped off at Acapulco. One of my greatest experiences in my life is I actually dived off the famous cliff cliff there. Not not from the top folks, but it, okay. it just people have heard me talk about this before. Great. I met the cliff divers and they, they took me for a swim. It was just brilliant. But Acapulco used to be like a real playboy area for Americans coming down who wanted a holiday. It, yeah. it was where the train robbers, you know, Buster Edwards absconded to, didn't he? He went to Acapulco, going loco yeah. in Acapulco was the, the song that came um, off the, the Phil Collins film and um now that's not a luxury designer tourist destination there's 50 drug gangs vying for power in Acapulco alone yeah i watched um one of my colleagues jason fox did a great film called uh, the real narcos and in the episode when he was in Acapulco, he's budded up with his copper and they're interviewing this this uh, police forensic guy The guy gets a call out. They had to go and retrieve God don't even like saying this on a podcast, but they had to go and retrieve a corpse and literally everything had been set, you know, and it was just lying in the street in front of, in, in front of all the passers by, right. Where this drug gang had carried out their retribution. They'd done this whole, they say they folks, if you're sensitive, cover your ears now. But they say they do this, and while they're alive, so they, you know, they've taken a chainsaw to someone, and they dump yeah. dump the parts in the street. And again, people very naive, you know, people just so naive they don't realise this is just all part of a big. It's a part of a big scam. Not not the criminals. The bigger, bigger, bigger scam.
1: Yeah. Um, Maybe ten years time. The, the signs of change in the states, isn't that changing the thinking so
0: well who's buying into all these legal cannabis companies now it's our, it's our mps <laughs> it's, isn't yeah. it you know well,
1: that's one of the problems it, it, when you've got drugs rife at the top of society with the mps uh, even like barristers and not think it's everywhere it's uh, it makes no sense the market is everywhere it's not it's not like count run like rundown deprived councils. it's everywhere all around society oh. it, yeah. it reaches the point where you have to accept the market and manage the market which is responsible and legalize and then the police can start doing proper police work again and get a bit more respect back because uh, everyone's opposed to the police on drugs and the police aren't really for these laws either so uh let well, mm. see you can just hope on that anyway but like i said the, the violence does come into it when you get involved with gangs it's it, it, it's inevitable at some point it does kick in um, and my dad my dad even my dad found that eventually um and that that's something that, that i i kind of eventually come around to discussing, because uh, i worked for him for that period you have that period where it is like a business but then later on um inevitably there's conflicts and not everyone's pretty decent or thinks long term there are some who kind of don't really have the ethics or see see thieving off of the drug dealers as quite a fair game there's a lot of that that goes on yeah. um and that's part of um uh, you'll see you'll see in the book, uh, in Amsterdam, two thousand and one, he has a problem there, uh, and that's during a period where he goes off on the run. and Can, you, uh,
0: can we talk about that? Because yeah, yeah, Am- Amsterdam is quite an exciting place for anyone that's been there, uh, anyway. Yeah. But but if you've been there for the old dibble dabble, then it, it gets even more. Uh, I mean, I've had a couple of experiences there that really raised my uh, eyebrows. You can say um what what can you tell us a bit about that
1: yeah i mean i first started going to amsterdam with him when he was released and he used to his suppliers were over in amsterdam every now and then go over you know see his suppliers sort things out and you can see amsterdam was this liberal place completely different to the uk you know it's great things but you realize underneath well it's a center of crime really in europe they haven't got conspiracy law so that's where all the villains used to meet that's where they do the deals that's where all the transport to the uk pass through you know bringing your drugs over so it become a real thing that's where all the money used to go to amsterdam um eventually my dad he gets we get raided a few times uh and there's a drugs trial uh he gets found not guilty on a drugs trial uh and then within six months of release, is rebuilding this business gets raided again goes on the run ends up in amsterdam and at that end he's doing supplying and smuggling importing that sort of thing um, but he's based in Amsterdam, uh, and there's a group there. Um, they learn of a handover that's happening in the UK of like about two, just over 200 grand, about 220, 240 grand being handed over. And they find out through the drivers because drivers come and go, and drivers, if they have an inkling of how things are done, they might kind of cooperate with another group to. And this is what happens another group learns of, of a handover, and they go and rob it. They rob 240 grand off a handover that. I was supposed to be the main guy on, but I got pulled at the last minute because uh, it was uh, to do with some Irish people. Um, so this guy who robbed it, it was a guy called David Royal from Bradford. It's a small group of, uh, like a, quite a violent group. My dad never dealt with them. Some people he knew dealt with them. Anyway, my dad, we trace back who who could have got this information out, realised where the information must have gone, and then this David Royal, you get some notes at his home address, saying, look, we know what you've done. We know what you've took. You're going to have to return it. Uh, And then he gets him on the phone and explains who he is. And then Royal does his homework and realises he's going to have to hand this money over. You know, he's he's robbed it fair and square the way he sees it, but he's robbed it off the old man. And the old man's very well connected in terms of, you know, like real top hierarchy. And he's demonstrated, look, we know where you live. We can come down any time and just take it or we can stump all over you. So, Which my dad doesn't want to do. So this Royal arranges to return the money in Amsterdam uh except it goes on a few weeks he doesn't there's a, it's kind of he should just hand it over but every now and then it's like well we're not quite ready it's not quite there and it feels like there's something not quite right there and of course he's plotting he's trying to he's thinking well how can i keep the money and get make this problem go away and he's getting some gunman over And the idea is they're going to kidnap my dad and just kill him is the idea so my dad meets this guy royal he knows something's not quite right so he takes a small little gun with him uh, they meet on the Docklands of Amsterdam late at night, not too late. Cause, you, you know, you just don't do it like in the movies. It's just uh, a normal time. Um, so he meets some on the Docklands and then some guys with baraclavas emerge with guns and basically, you know, get out of the car. Yeah. You know, well, you can imagine what's coming next. So my dad's stuck in a dilemma and he just slowly move out of the car. And as he moves out of the car, he pulls his gun and they shoot him at point blank range in the chest. So. And in any sort of film shot like that you tend to go down but in real life he doesn't you know he's took the bullet but he's not going down he's just really shook but he carries on pulls his gun and starts firing at them and he shoots two of them he shoots he shoots one who goes down one runs escapes and the main guy who sets him up this guy called david royal he shoots him in the chest and royal does go down and then he dies within a few minutes um and then my dad's got this he's got this bullet in the chest he needs to get away And he's still standing and he staggers away, manages to get to a safe house a few streets away. And then he phones me and then I go over uh, and then wait. By the time I get over there, like 12 hours later or something, he's kind of, it's late at night and he's on a stretcher bed at his safe house. All his phones are gone and we're just there in silence. And I spend, uh, I'm there for three days waiting to see whether he's going to pull through. Um, Because it's, it's gone in the chest. You just don't know if he's going to go downhill What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And you've got to have all the phones off because there's, there's a big panic. Um, the Dutch are at the scene, and they'll be straight on the phones because the Dutch are very high tech. So we just stay there and wait for him to pull through, which he does gradually. Um, but before he pulls through, rather than yeah, as he as he's when we first get there, he's in this real bad state. But he stops taking his meds and he lies on this bed and he tells us exactly the story of the shooting which I put in the book, and he describes it in fine, fine detail. Um, and then, the, then he goes to sleep, and the following morning, he just come around, and he, the, the improvement starts the next morning. And immediately, he wants to see people, he wants people around to see that he's okay, because he doesn't want other villains thinking he's dead, and he doesn't want them thinking he's out of action or he's gone. Uh, he says he needs the people to actually come around, see him, and get on with his deals, because he's gonna have to get out of Holland, but he's gonna make sure his reputation's solid. Um, so that's what happens for the next day or two while he's lying on this sofa bed, you know, with this all bandaged up and everything, he conducts all these meetings and wraps up all these deals, and all these Dutch people see he's good, and they all make these officers sort out certain problems and wrap things up and get him out of the country. And that's what happens, and it's for that period, which is why the book starts like that, I start to wonder why he's doing all this for, like I said to you earlier, because it doesn't seem to be about the money. It seems to be about this game that he likes. Uh, which is is about making money, but it's also about this excitement uh, and situations like this don't occur very often. but he's had situations with guns before I've learned you know where people threatening you at point blank range and uh, people threatening. that's kind of part and parcel. he doesn't seem very he, he didn't seem to have the normal fear any rational person would have. He seems to he seems to see these problems as problems to be managed. Uh, so that's part of the reason I wrote the book is because of this. Is trying to figure out why he was the way he was and why he loved this crime. He was because up to that point he must have spent seventeen years in jail. You know, he did this bank robbery, and the counterfeit, and then he'd he held a gun to a, a guy's head when he was a, in his early twenties. He did. He got the four years for that. Um, but you had it, it seventeen years inside, and he's and he absolutely enjoys it. He's got such an appetite for it. And this is why later I eventually wrote the book because it was about me trying to understand why he was like that. And I suppose other criminals are like that because some of them mm. some of them seem to do it for the money and some of them seem to do it for the excitement they seem to be two different breeds and he was someone who just did it for the excitement but why why he needed that excitement in his life it's a bit of a mystery
0: how's so, it affected um jace how's it affected you then because you're being quite um you know you're, you're sort of going along with this i don't want to say blasé but I mean, he's your dad, and he's setting this pretty, pretty crap example to you. And he, he, you know, dads are kids' heroes, aren't they? You know, yeah. I and know, and, and still he still
1: stands with
0: him, yeah. He's putting you through some severe trauma. Did 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 you? Is this something you had to work work through in your life? I mean, did you hit the booze yourself?
1: No, um, I think it was it was so normalised with him. You know, from when I was a kid visiting him at Long Larton for the bank robbery. You kind of get used to the climate around him. It's, uh, I mean, around him, you never you never talk about emotions or how you feel or you're having a bad day. It's kind of because he's had worse days and, you know, he's he never grumbled. When he was inside, he never grumbled. When he got shot, he never grumbled. He just mm. never never complained about anything. So you do learn that complaining is something you don't do. And your emotions are the things you keep to yourself. Um, I mean obviously i would have had my emotional issues later but i can't say i felt traumatized by any of this it was kind of i i adopted i suppose his way of thinking which was this is kind of business uh, and this is a this is business gone wrong and it needs to be sorted out by doing x y and z and x was letting people know he was fine and y was getting him out of the country and z was starting over again so i, I kind of kind of echoed him in a to a certain respect largely because I thought he was expert on this and I wasn't, he really knew what he was doing. Uh, and he, he had a track record of being very good at it, but unfortunately he would get caught simply because he did so much. He never really, you know, like retreated or said that's enough for a while. It's just against his nature, mm. which is, like I said, something that really fascinated me as to why he would be like that.
0: What kind of <clears throat> any famous names you can chuck out that you, you not, you know you you hung around with back in the day or you 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 i mean there you...
1: was there was the, without mentioning the names because there's things still lingering uh, there was the nottingham people uh there's only a few you could conclude that was there's Nottingham people going leicester uh show chenya he i mean he was a good friend i mean uh, when i met my wife that was a double date with shoka and um, we went out and met my wife and everything and my future wife and he was a good friend show was Um, But then he'd get 20 years. He was, unfortunately, he was very arrogant. He ended up with bloody 20 years. And then he would become very humble. And my dad's barristers got him off. And then he came out, but then he'd come out again. And it was that thing of wanting to make up for lost time. He'd lost everything when he got his 20 years. He had a golf course, lost everything. And he wanted to build up very fast. Mm. But unfortunately, he wasn't with my dad then. He was like his guide earlier on. And he, he kind of employed a bit of violence, very aggressive, in order to build back up. And he'd end up getting murdered, he would. Um, but uh, that, was, that, when that was national news. He, uh, there was a driver. He'd give him a pistol whipping uh, for, I think, losing some money or cheating him on something. And later on, that driver remembered this. And months later, when he, Ash thought things were good, he kind of, in the back of his the set prize Mercedes, he stabbed him like 16 times in the chest and then burnt, burnt his Mercedes and then did a runner. And then later he'd get caught. He'd go down for that. But that was the way Ash ended and ash was a good friend of my dad's when i first started working for him we see ash virtually every day and like i said he'd come out nightclubs and stuff he was there uh, but he had a very bad end but there's quite a few like that um that just that the side of the character that ended up being there and doing they wouldn't let things go on the money was too much was i used to see when my dad rather than fall out with people just let it go uh, because there's plenty of money to be made he'd always say you just don't fall out with people and Ash was an example of that. You fall out with people, people remember, and someone who's a nobody can kill somebody quite easily. Mm. And that was really Ash's tale. Um, but there were others like that as well. Uh, but like I said, the Nottingham people, he had some dealings with the Liverpool people early on. Uh, Curtis Warren, he did a few dealings with him at the start when he just got released. Um, so he had a lot of respect for him. thought he was a genuine old school guy. Um, and I think he's got like an impeccable reputation. That's, that still stands and he was of course he was released a few weeks back um and i said um, there was a few, a few london people a lot, of the, a lot of the people he dealt with tended to be close <clears throat> you know like in terms of geography and one reason for that is it's it's like if you were a driver if you were dropping some stuff off in say leicester you got paid the same as if you dropped it off in glasgow except that you, take, you know the time so all the logistics will come in so you try and deal close so you make more money you really don't want to be dealing with Glasgow or Ireland or, you know, all these long distances. Mm. So a lot of it was like, it would be like Birmingham and Nottingham and Leicester, and then they would distribute it further afield. But they were all the groups we dealt with, especially the Birmingham ones as well. Um, but a lot of them are heavy duty that I don't throw the names around. Uh, the Nottingham one, my dad's, I think he's on the internet. He's got a lot of associations. Um, so that's, that's kind of matter, matter of record. Um, but the old london people he knew a lot of the old london people from back in the day we didn't they, they were they didn't really get mixed up in the drugs so much they were more bank robberies and that sort of thing back in the day mm. um but he seemed to know all the top tier people uh, as i said to you you know when there'd be disputes between one group and another group whether they were customers of the, my dad's or they were just people who knew people he knew they'd be in touch asking if you resolve some they had a problem in newcastle for instance and he'd say oh yeah i know them all i did time with so and so and he'd sort it out for them. Or we in Manchester or Liverpool. And he had this great reach to sort out problems. Um, and that's something he did because he spent so many years inside and he, was, he used to network so much. Um, he could just sort out things like that very easily, just with phone calls. So you'd have instances where someone in, say, Newcastle, is falling out with someone in Manchester, and my dad could get in the middle and sort the situation out. Mm. So there'd be no violence or anything. He so just think that's a pretty good thing to be able to do. But he'd get a certain kudos for being able to do that. And people would see you could sort them things out, and realise you just don't steal off him. Um, so there was no threat. It was just an ability was demonstrated. I suppose mm. you kind of. My dad used to say when he first got out, they might not be scared of him personally, but they'd be scared of the people he knows, and that's the thing that really stood um, because he virtually knew everybody. it was all top level people, and a lot of them because he'd been inside with them. You know, you say you're on a you're in solitary with them, or you in the yard or you they're in the next cell or, or on your wing, you get to know them really well. You know what the character's like, and you know, if they stand up and if they're, they're true to the word, they're good business people. If they're, if they've got any like bad character flaws, you get to know them really well and have all the people he was inside with from them would emerge the good people. The people you could deal with year in, year out, never have a problem. And if you lost money with them, they would be fine with it. They'd be like, you know, you, know, you owe me 50 grand, just pay it when you're out in three, four years. To be very laid back because they were good people and that's where all his best contacts came from
0: so yeah before we go any further i don't want to yeah. f- uh, forget <coughs> say, saying a big thank you to nick who put me in touch with you jason yeah um yeah nick, nick's absolute legend he's he's hooked up me with quite a few great great podcasts so nick much love to you buddy yeah. and uh, nick um, as well, yeah. and thank you um Jason, the last thing I want to chat, well, I've got two more things I want to chat about. We'll, yeah. we'll come on to movies or, or films. Okay. Uh, um, I've got a few sort of favorites in this area. What, um, any experience of the old sort of Spanish thing, you know, Costa del crime.
1: Uh, yeah. I did a, a lot down there. Yeah. Spain was a big deal because he dealt with Holland and he dealt with Spain. And I always felt safer in Spain. Because Holland, it was high-tech, loads of surveillance, undercovers, police everywhere. In, in Spain, it was always laid back. But Spain was where I ended up getting arrested because uh, we got done by an undercover unit, uh, which took me completely by surprise. Uh, because, you know, we've been in Britain, lots of surveillance, uh, Holland, similar thing. You know, no problems. And then Spain, where it's supposed to be laid back, and it's hardly supposed to be any. That's where we got done. Uh, and we, kept, we would come through it, but... We were just dropping some money off. You know, it was to buy a ship out there. He was buying a ship. It was like, uh, I never actually saw this. Sometimes some people say it was a boat, others said it was a bloody ship. And it had all these smuggling compartments. And it was tried and tested for donkey's years. And the captain of it, he was retiring the owner. Um, so my dad was buying the ship and I took the last bit of money over with a few other guys. Uh, and as we paid it over, uh, the money was all handed over, deal done everything. We came away uh, off to some, uh, trying to find a bar to have a drink and everything. Went to some retail complex. As soon as I got out of the car, we all got arrested. Undercover unit were on us within seconds. And they were the scruffiest bunch of kids you ever did see. And they've just just come from absolutely nowhere. I was stunned. It was like I've done everything I'd always learned to do and I hadn't spotted them. And I was a bit you know, I would we bought them there So and then I realized they had been on them for days. Um and they just they held us for like best part of the day in the cars. While they searched this their warehouse, many old man had. They were obviously searching for drugs or money, but the money had come and it had gone within minutes, and they didn't know that. It took the best part of the day to realise that. I would just sit there thinking, how long are you going to be in prison for? Uh, can we wriggle out of this because we're in Spain? Can we bribe people? And are we all going to get to the, same, to the same place? But that was one of the bit of a turning point for me. But, yeah, Spain was a happy place for me, Spain, apart from that, because mm. my dad was on the run in Spain for a number of years. And he was up at Barcelona, a place called Casta de Fels, kind of a real, you know, luxury area. Um, and my days in Spain were often just driving my dad about, going to meetings and, and doing the same things we did in England, except I'd feel safer. And it was sunny and there was bars. and uh, But it was the same thing, long days, just long days of working. He'd be up at six, out at eight, and then back back at the place. Kind of early was the idea because he was on the run. Um, in the UK, they launched this campaign, Public Enemy Number 1. There was five of them and my dad was number one guy and basically, because he hadn't turned up for a year or so and they were still looking for him. They figured he was in Spain. So they led this campaign. And when they do things like that, it means you've got to cut down your circle of people you deal with because you're worried about getting grassed up. So my dad's circle of people he could work with went smaller and smaller, which is what happens when you're on the run. Mm. But it also means people can take a few liberties when you're on the run because you can't really have conflicts with people at all, simply because you know, once you're gone, they're not going to pay you. So there's, yeah, people have a bit of an interest in you going down. So he was on the run for about three years in Spain and then eventually he did get done He got his, uh, got seven years there and then, uh, yeah, a lot of courtroom after that. But Mm. yeah, yeah, dealt with Spain a great deal.
0: I heard um, Danny Dyer runs, runs things down there.
1: Oh, Danny Dyer. (laughs) Well, you do, you you do get people like that down there. I think, my dad's people were like professional people, low profile. Mm. And we did have one Danny Dyer guy come in he was very so loud. He scared the hell out of everybody. They were doing some boat work and he had to put this guy in the next village because he, he drew that much attention. But you needed him because he was the skipper of the boat. Mm. Otherwise, you would have got rid of him. But we only had one skipper, so you had to keep him. And they had to put him in the next village and keep him happy uh, because they were relying on him. But he fell out with virtually everybody because he, he you know, he had this... Uh, this movie idea of what a gangster was, but he drew, drew so much attention and going to a bar and you know, <laughs> want champagne and drinks for everybody. And you can't really do that in sleepy Spanish villages without people clocking it. But
0: I, yeah, I'm um, I should give some credit to Danny there because I tell you what, he, he, he's one of my favorite actors. And yeah, I, I have to say it when he went to EastEnders, I was a little bit like, oh, for fuck's sake, really? Yeah. He, he's in one of my favorite films ever the business have you ever, have you ever seen it with
1: yeah
0: and it was just oh exciting stuff you know you can you can see the glamour yeah
1: um, i think the, the, the stuff that makes the movies is the ones you gotta have in a movie you've got a have conflict have not you you kind of i mean the, you know the guys who don't fall out and do it professionally they wouldn't make good movies you've got other people who fall out you know who don't get paid and the round with shotguns and the ones who are allowed and you've got to have, like say with the american movies i guess you know if the top guys wouldn't make great movies but the middle guys who are always falling out they make great movies
0: and i think yes. that's what we
1: get really yeah that's uh yeah, I yeah. Think that's pretty much every british movie going. it's about the middle guys isn't it the guys who aren't the big suppliers who deal with them
0: i really enjoyed that film uh tamar hassan just who played charlie was just absolutely brilliant in i think i think probably is for me is the best my favorite film that i've seen him in and he had jeff bell who played the psycho sammy who was the guy that would go on the armed robberies and he would actually shoot people (laughs) and he's probably like every uh conservative criminal's nightmare um So did you but, watch did you watch The Wire at all? No nah, mate, I stopped kind of watching TV in in that sense. Um well, yeah, in 2001 if I was honest or well about 2005. Um but no, I didn't. Occasionally like I make exceptions for example, I watch The Narco series because I'm just fascinated in that stuff, you know. Yeah, all the the Mexican drug lords and uh, and Pablo Escobar and and um yeah, in I mean we talked about psychopaths earlier. I mean Pablo Escobar, he wouldn't think nothing of of blowing up a car outside a building where most of the people in the building had never done nothing to him, right? Yeah, with passers by walking their kids and da 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 and 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 it literally looked like the scene of a nuclear explosion after Pablo had finished. Right. And all to take out like one person who, who who'd, who'd gone against him all yeah. like to take down an airliner. Cause they, there was one person on it and they just didn't give a shit about all the innocent people. And yet when the, uh, I think it was the Cali cartel bombed the flat that his wife and kids were in, they didn't get hurt. Well, I mean, they got, superficial kind of I mean his daughter yeah. lost a, lost part of her hearing right the guy goes absolutely like super pussy <laughs> like oh, right. like crying his eyes just utterly beside himself with grief so
1: psychopaths can be like that can't they yeah
0: yeah it, so it was for
1: themselves but never for anybody else
0: it's just incredible like my god dude you can do all this stuff to complete strangers who have done nothing to you but when anyone tries to get back at you you literally mm. cry like a girl it was sorry sorry girls that was inappropriate but you know what right. i'm saying you know
1: yeah but it's, it's the way i mean all the all the villains seem to be they seem to have these contradictions and it's never what you think it is mm. you know the the who you think is an absolute psychopath, you realise he's got a real, real weak point, at an Achilles heel. And that seems quite normal. And when I was reading my dad, it was amazing how, you know, you don't go on appearances because they're very deceptive, but people who do f- seem to be like that underneath, you realise there's something else going on as well. And It does seem to be always the way. Um But yeah, I mean, Azkibar, it'd be nice if a good film was made from that sort of point of view about it, rather than one that glamorises, but like a, a proper filmmaker
0: yeah
1: it would be good to see that to see the other side because it's to I mean to do what he did you've got to be a ruthless psychopath to do
0: that you know yeah I think his son's doing a few podcasts now you know he's changed, changed his name and um you know he openly says like I'm nothing to do with my dad you know don't tell me with that brush I was just an in, 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 innocent really um it was insane, insanity what 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 that family went through just just you know on the run and in order to keep warm they're burning like hundred thousand dollars worth of dollars on the fire because they've got no firewood just yeah. in in crazy stuff but um i mean i think all this stuff can look
1: glamorous from a distance but when you go close in it's just not glamorous at all
0: no it's well the real it's,
1: intensity about it is not pleasant it,
0: when well, it's it at away you know. yeah it's all based in uh well, a lot of it's based in ego. We I talk a lot on my show about the spiritual battle, you know, and and if you're led by your ego, you're fucked. Yeah, <laughs> your life is just not going to be fun, um, and yeah. and that's a big thing. I mean, you know, when you're deep, when you're in that circle, and everybody in it's probably been damaged from their own childhoods, you know, they're probably ang- angry young men to start, and they're living in their ego and like no one disses me, and da-da. it's it's uh you know morals and scruples are a little bit like a bit like yeah. that it's a dis it's never going to end up well is it you know they're not all on their yoga mats are they you know chanting and okay y'all and let's no, let's let's eat some spinach and, and 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 everything will be good it's it's a very different uh a very different world you know very different world where you 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 do get this montage of psychopaths and sociopaths and damaged people and abused people and greedy people and in and in innocence all woven in this 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 tapestry which is just never going to end well
1: yeah like you said that the ends for a lot of the people when I look back I mean I did mention that in the book when I go through the cast of people there's a disproportionate amount of people who are dead Mm. and inside and it disappeared. And you just think, well, what did happen to them? There's a guy. There's a guy. Last words I heard, he was kidnapped in Gibraltar. Never found out what happened to him. It was. Uh, but the people you do wonder about, well, what the hell happened there? Um, but there's a lot of a lot of damaged people. A lot of people, even if they do their time, aren't the same when they come back. Very few are when they're released again. You can't really go back to who you were when you were younger. Uh, and if you do, you're kind of ex- in that exceptional class, I suppose, where you do wonder what, why.
0: Well, it, there, is that,
1: benefit.
0: there is that expression isn't it crime doesn't pay and to anybody watching now if you're going down that path and we've all done it to a degree because it's it's appealing at certain times in yeah. your life yeah but i'd say to anyone if you've got the brains to do a crime you've got the brains to do a business and when you do a business you don't have to look over your shoulder for your rest of your life and you don't have to wake up in cells one day which is just fucking awful it's yeah. awful there's no more time when you look you can't look yourself in the mirror because you ain't got a mirror in in a police cell but at that moment you just think oh my god what have i done i've lost my liberty and then and, and that's the most important thing in life is is freedom um, and
1: that's one of the ironic things a lot of people are going they do value freedom the the freedom to do whatever they want but when you're inside you can't do that and no. uh, you kind of lose that thing that you prize so much mm. the material things you pry, You lose that as well because a lot of the guys once they've made so much you would think common sense would say like your your eyes common sense would be well stop now you know like at a casino yeah. you're up you may as well just leave the table now but there's that ego thing of having to carry on where you yeah. just can't let it alone
0: ego and greed isn't it uh, Mm.
1: yeah and it brings down a lot of people and also if you go inside you don't want to be someone who thinks i can do the time i don't mind losing my family i don't mind this you wouldn't want to be like that either um so either way you lose really
0: on a sort of lighter note to finish jace yeah. what uh have you got any favorite sort of gangster films or um, or, um or books in that area obviously with the exception of yours and mine <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, the, the Wire is probably the best series I've ever watched on on organized crime, especially the, like the first series where it goes back to the nineties, which I know where it's all about the phones and um, keeping a low profile, and you know it's all about that. that. That's probably the best series I've seen. Goodfellas, it's kind of move. It's like movie gangsters, but it's of a time, and that that's a fantastic film. The Tarantino stuff's entertaining, but it's it's movies at the end of the day. There. You know, there's a movie, you get movies and films, I think, and movies are more entertainment, films are more about real reality. And I suppose Scorsese is a bit more reality with Goodfellas. Um, but yeah, there's some of those American movies. Yeah, they're pretty special, the Scorsese ones.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the, yeah, The Wire would be the big recommendation, I think, because I still um, make people, I still make people haven't watched it.
0: I'll have a it's, look out oh, for that
1: there, It's such a layered series and it's so long. And it's not. It goes against all the cliches as well. All the things that you. you
0: is, it ba- is it based on real life, or, or I mean, obviously it's loosely based on it, but is it any particular real life story, or is it is it? No, sort of and that, that's,
1: that's the thing about. It. It's about a cast of stories where it's, mm. and they're all kind of interwoven. So it's got about. It's got the drug addict at the bottom, but then it's got the drug supplier at the top, and then it's got the you know the 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 levels, the middleman. Mm. Uh, and all that like i said how they all fall out the fallouts tend to be with the middlemen and all the people at the top try and be businessmen or at least think they are but it's a lot of ego as well you see a lot of these guys with ego come down and not a lot of people survive it either but it's it's a fantastic series and it keeps mm. it keeps re-energizing itself as soon as you think well i've got that i know what the series is about another layer emerges and you think christ and that's a whole new series but i still make people have not watched it and it's incredible
0: to me you would watch that series yeah what about uh Neil by mouth have you seen that one i don't i don't think i've seen that no oh man i know
1: it's a very famous
0: movie yes just one of the best films i think ever for understanding like the seedy underbelly of crime and and drugs and addiction and how it all it, the most important thing i took from that film is what we're here to talk about today is the relationship of a father and a son and how powerful it is yeah um and uh yeah nil by mouth folks if you haven't seen it get try and grab yourself a copy whichever way you do that these days i don't know i I try not to buy (laughs) to have to buy anything but um yeah ray winston just just another classic ray winston kathy burke is just brilliant in it um um charlie creed miles who's done a lot of these sort of gangster sort of stuff um yeah yeah really um yeah i i I do like films that explore the family relationship um because nothing's what it seems is it you know yeah, I
1: think a lot a lot of films do have that focus where it's just on the gangsters and not what's around them, which is where the interest is really. Yeah.
0: Like um, the biggest thing in this film that or, or one of the, the 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 scenes that you take away is where he the boy's talking about he has a dog, like a pet dog, and his dad, for whatever reason, comes home one day in a bad mood and shoots the dog. Oh. He's like, he shot my fucking dog. He shot my fucking dog. And you can see how it's no wonder that this lad that 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 um, that uh, is it is it sorry is it Charlie? Hang on, I'm got to check me. Yeah, Charlie Creed-Miles. That the it's no wonder the lad that he plays grows up a raving you know addicted to heroin. Oh <laughs> that, yeah, that's it. That's his role model. Um, um, yeah, quite. It's called Neil by Mouth because in the end, the, the Ray Winston character who's this big tough you know guy he's not afraid of no one and he's finally like breaking down and 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 it's all coming to a head he he talks about his dad and he said you know my dad never hugged me as a kid my you know my dad never done this he he all, all he did was sit in his chair and drink you know and mm-hmm. you couldn't interrupt him da, 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 da. And, and the he said and he's like pointing out the irony that when his dad died in hospital and he's kind of, you know, you can lift him off the bed with two fingers kind of thing. That oh. that the the sign above the bed said kneel by mouth. <laughs> and he was like So oh. his dad, you know, the irony that his dad had drunk himself to death, but on his deathbed it says kneel kneel by mouth. That's that's why that film's called uh you know, cool. Oh, I'll give that a look. Who's the director? Uh I think it's Gary Oldman. Um oh, okay yeah they've they've all done some good stuff those those guys they've done britain proud really in in the in the in the film stakes but yeah
1: yeah definitely give that a look then Mm. i do like the films but there's not that many they're kind of made a bit differently nowadays aren't the films like I tend to go Yeah, back to you your...
0: mean they're all shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: <they're> frankly, yeah.
0: <laughs> they're a lot of too
1: much CGI and a lot too much Too
0: show, much Oliver. CGI. It's always some fantasy angle. Can't just tell a real good story. You know, like, I mean, yeah. uh, Midnight Express.
1: I mean, Oliver Stone stuff was always good, Oliver Stone. But, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, he did TV. TV. He's done a bit of TV. He seems to retire retired now. But a lot of old good directors and actors have just stepped back, it seems. You yeah, know, this age um, of CGI.
0: Um uh, Oliver Stone, wasn't he didn't he do
1: Platoon? We did Scarface. We did Platooners. We did Scarface, didn't he, most famously?
0: Yeah, Midnight Express oh, was was written by Oliver Stone based you on know. the Bill, Bill, Billy Hayes story. Yeah. Yeah, I like all that. You know, I, I don't need bells and whistles on my films. I just want to see a good story. Yeah, you want trade. it to be believable, authentic, and to Yeah, I don't need yeah. CGI, I don't need phasing back and forth between sci-fi genre or you know, or 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 whatever. But yes. Jace, listen, this okay. has been absolutely wonderful chat, mate. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it and I've found it fascinating. Okay then. Let me oh,
1: I should have a book yeah, Get
0: get back. get your book up.
1: Oh, there's the book. So it's the old man and me. Um uh, you get it amazon you get it from many waterstones mm.
0: hold, um, hold it hold it up again so, it. there yeah. we go look there you go folks look the old man and me jason wilson a gangster's life a son's journey we'll put a link below the podcast folks so you can grab yourself a copy um can have you got social media jace people want to get hold of you I do, I'm, on, I'm on twitter at the old man and me um
1: so that's, that's the main thing i do instagram i don't do a great deal but twitter i'm always doing twitter um yeah and uh, yeah there should be plenty more stuff coming out as well
0: i'm just making a note of that yes brilliant brother listen i wish you all the best um just one one last question did you ever have to do any time
1: no no i was very i mean i i did a combination of listening to what my dad says a lot of luck uh yeah i suppose there was a lot of luck involved but a lot of it's just mm. i suppose i built up the experience by working with him so i think when they when they got raided in 2000 i I hook it off to thailand because i could see it coming uh and then late, i did get it there were warrants out for me then i got arrested in spain but bounced through that fortunately and then i had the sense to withdraw because i think seeing how, how much time the old man had done it was like I just, you just don't want to go there really
0: yeah uh, yeah
1: so and it was that lack of ego thing where you think well I'd rather have a happy family than have a load of money and be inside. And it's exactly. just, it makes sense. All the kind of the best things in life are, are kind of free in a way. You only need so much money.
0: You don't I, need. Mate, I money I'd, I'd I could be quite happy living in a garden shed. I wouldn't give a shit, you know, as long as I have yeah. my freedom. It just doesn't matter yeah. to me, you know?
1: And I think that's the thing. Seeing your dad who hasn't got his freedom means you want to keep yours.
0: Mm. And
1: you don't want to take silly risks and risk losing everything for what just for a bit more money it's just not worth
0: it yeah, yeah. exactly so
1: that steered me through anyway lack of ego
0: <laughs> Jay stay on the line so I can thank you properly but for the purposes oh. of the recording which I shouldn't say that on a criminal podcast should I <laughs> but oh. for the purposes of the tape uh massive thank you mate massive thank you How then? friends we're going to put a look for uh, a link for Jace's book below so please grab yourself a copy Um, Just to say much, much love to you all. Please look after yourselves. If you can chuck us a like and a subscribe on the the video and and hit the notification bell, that's all going to help. And uh, stay free, and we'll see you next time. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username... Chris Thrall, Instagram chris.thrall, thank you.